You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Welcome to University Baptist Church. My name is Josh. Um, if you're a visitor, I'm glad that you're here. If you're always here, I'm glad that you're here. And I am going to have a few things to say before I get going. <laughs> Just give me a second. Really? Okay. I will try. Um, take off my coat, I guess. Uh, sorry, I got a little distracted there. Um, what was I saying? A few things to say. Number one, um, we have been watching, we, the leadership team, the staff, as always, what is happening in the world with this pandemic. And um, as you may have noticed, the Waco ISD has rescinded their mask requirements, uh, as has my, my children's own school district and another of other entities. Um, beyond this, um, some of our sister churches, we feel institutions that sort of hold the faith and ideological things uh, similarly to we do have also moved, are moving towards rescinding mask requirements or making masks optional. So um, I have gathered some data and I just wanna show you one chart. This is from the DFW uh, epidemiologist, and I, I can't remember her, Kate, Caitlin, anybody knows her last name. Um, so essentially, you probably can't read this, but um, we right now are abiding in the yellow zone here, which is a positivity rate for at least a week under 8%. Um, and at this point, um, it, it is advised, I don't know, I wanna say suggested, it is feasible for folks to be in the same space without masks together. Um, since this came out, since with this research, I've also seen the CDC has assigned counties across the United States, one of three colors. Um, and I believe if I have this right, uh, green means you're in the clear. Nobody should have to worry about wearing a mask. Yellow is if you're immunocompromised or pregnant or whatever these categories, uh, you should probably still mask, but other people do not, are not required to mask. And then I think, I didn't look, but it's red, it's probably stay masked. Um, McLennan County is, is yellow and, and trending in a, in a great direction. So um, the leadership team has taken all this together. And of course, uh, the, the feelings and the care that goes into um, what not requiring masks means for some people's attendance and also being mindful that there are people who are probably choosing not to worship here because of mask requirements. And they have carried this the whole time through. But all that to say, they have voted next week to begin a, a period of mask being optional for us. Um, and they have set some very specific benchmarks as that changes, because we know it can be sort of a whirlwind to get changes coming at you all the time. But that is the decision. Um, if you'd like to talk to me or anybody on staff about that, please feel free. Uh, but I just wanted you to know, I'll put that in the newsletter. The other thing is this, and I'm being mindful that um, there's a chance that this information was not disseminated as prolifically as we'd hope, and somebody may be hearing this for the very first time. Um, I did announce last week at the end of the service that after 15 years, I am leaving UBC. Uh, my last uh, preaching Sunday will be in a, a less than a month now on, on March 20th. Um, I wanted to say that to address a few things. First of all, I have had so many kind notes and things said and sent to me this week, uh, which was so many of you. So thank you for doing that. The other thing that I, um, it kind of been a strange theme to emerge is a lot of people have said, well, you know, you have to buy nicer clothes now. Uh, so I suppose that's true. Uh, thank you for letting me dress, I guess not very well these last 15 years. Um, but I do want to address, I think, something more serious. And I, of course, now I'm picking my own leadership moments 
very selectively because in some sense, every day that passes, this is less and less mine to lead. Um, but I think that the concern in this, there's a sort of anxiety that's injected into any kind of system when there's any kind of change like this, but that um, UBC in my departure would, would lose some sense of, of who we are or what more particularly has made this space safe and meaningful for so many people. And um, I wanna say this, uh, number one, uh, what we have built together, what we have sacrificed for, what we have thrown ourselves into to become will far outlive me. And that has been the case before I got here, and that will continue to be the case well after I'm gone. Uh, the other thing I want to say is, um, you know, I, I try and be very careful about how I speak about providence, because um, it, frankly, Christians, evangelicals have been very sloppy about that. Um, but if I were to use this Esther tag for such a time as this, I do believe uh, that our current chair, Kathy Cry, is tremendous. Uh, there are a few people who I would trust more to handle this moment with such care and transparency and organization, and, and her le leadership ability is, is really just uh, something to behold. Um, and then the other thing I would say is there will come a very specific moment in the search process, and the leadership team's going to talk to you about this, so I'm sorry if I'm stealing their thunder, where the three other full-time staff get to interview the final candidate. And um, first I should say that so much of what happens up here is not me. It doesn't have my fingerprints around it at all. And so if you've appreciated the theological DNA and, and the other things about this space, I didn't craft a lot of it. And that's still going to be here. But what I wanted to say about the three of them is I think in the sort of Trinitarian wisdom of the Enneagram, uh, the three of them exist in the gut triad, the heart triad, and the thinking triad collectively. And so there's that, 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 I think that will be present. But the other thing I would say is they, they're just tremendous theological thinkers and they will not let us bring in somebody who's not a good fit for this. So if I can just address that anxiety and say, I'm very confident that going forward, the baton will be handed off very seamlessly and whoever comes in after me will do a tremendous job and keep this thing that we love so much propped up and going forward in a great direction. Okay. Um, in the summer of 2019, Lindsay and I went to New York City for the very first time. Um, I was uh, surprised to discover how well I fit in there. Uh, a lot of people fail to appreciate my version of cool, but not the New Yorkers. They get it, and I get them. Uh, King Kong musicals, hot dog stands, dollar pizzas. I drink deeply from the well of culture that is New York City. I get why it's on par with Paris. Um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I can become a bit obsessive. In addition to this fact, I love geography. So when we got home from New York, I became very obsessive about New York. And one of the ways that that obsessiveness took expression was that I watched the seven-part, 14-hour series put together by PBS in 1999 about New York. In one of the very first episodes, viewers learned about something called the 1811 Commissioner's Plan, in which uh, they, the, the planners were responsible for putting together what became the layout of, of Manhattan. So um, basically everything above Houston Street up through 155th was designed by the, this 1811ers commissioner's plan. It was led by John Randall, who introduced the idea of imposing a grid on the island itself, um, which, and here's a picture of the commissioner's map, and I, I widened it, obviously Manhattan's much more narrow, um, but um, that's pretty much how Manhattan looks today, if you know it. Uh, the 1811 commission was initially ridiculed, but it has kind of become a par for the course for city planning. It's, it was a pioneering effort. So let's say this, let's say that you and I were selected by the city of Waco to help plan the city, right? We'd probably propose something like this. Uh, we would, in the east-west direction, 
pick some streets that were called first, I don't know, second, third street, right? And then in the north-south direction, we might get a little saucy and spicy in our, uh, our creative ability. We might pick, I don't know, Park Avenue. Maybe we would pick Main Street. Or we could pick something themed like uh, trees, pine, uh, maple, you know, oak, whatever. Or if we wanted to suggest a sequence to people, we could pick presidents because it's sort of referential. You could have Washington and then Adams and then Jefferson. And what would happen then is as people were navigating the city, even if they were new, sort of through intuition, they could figure out where they were. And all of this would be very elegant. Well, not Waco. Waco said, screw you, New York. Uh, we're going to lev leverage some of our Enneagram 4 energy and decided to build a city that was designed like this. Um, are you one of those people who's like, wow, I really got to hit up a good corn maze this fall? <laughs> well, boy, do I have a fun idea for you. Pick a location in Waco you've never been to and just impl uh, impose one rule on yourself. You can't use your Google map at, at all and just go for it. See how it goes. Um, now, here's what's really exciting about Waco right now. Uh, Waco and Bellamy got together and they said, hey, we have this massive construction project going on that is the I-35 expansion. And to complement TxDOT, this is supposed to finish, I guess, a year and a half, two years ahead of schedule. So, uh, But for some reason, the good people in the, the, the Bellmy Transportation Department got together with the people in the Waco Transportation Department, and they decided that let's do every other construction project that we've had on the docket for the next 10 years all at one time. So take a thoroughfare, a major thoroughfare like 5th Street. You know, there's 4th and 5th, 18th and 17th, there's 26th and, okay, 5th Street. They went ahead and blew that up right by the silos, right? Um, so here's a, a, a screenshot of a traffic map in Waco. This is, now granted, it's Thursday morning. Uh, schools are delayed because the roads are bad. Well, the roads are Texas bad. And then uh, there's um, a, a delay, so like traffic is bad later in the day. It's 9.30, right? And uh, lest you've not seen one of these maps, let me offer for you a sort of verbal key. The orange means traffic is moving very slow, probably unnecessarily slow. The red means traffic is not moving at all, and the little red circles with the white dash in them means that the construction crew just gave up there. Don't even go there. That's a death trap, right? Um, so I want to tell you about one particular day. Uh, my family lives on Colcord Avenue. Before this, we lived on 14th Street right off of Waco Drive, and before that, before kids, we lived over by Baylor's campus. Uh, a point being, in our 18-year existence, we've more or less lived here-ish, right? So my wife, for example, drives two miles to school every day. My kids, with all their varying campus locations, also go about two miles to get to school. Uh, UBC is about two miles from my house. The nearest HEB is 2.2 miles from our house. Um, except for an invitation occasionally to hang out with our friends in the burbs, we really don't go anywhere, right? Uh, when I register our vehicles with insurance and you have to guesstimate how, much mile, how many miles you're going to put that year, I would say for our main car, like 10. That includes a round trip to Wisconsin and back every year, sometimes two. And in my car, I would say like three to five. When I had a scooter, it was even better. So uh, we're living the, the dream. Our carbon footprint is very small. All that to say, I've become very accustomed to, to driving nowhere. Trips that would take more than five minutes would upset me. Uh, then we got foster kids, and the only place that will take government daycare money is located uh, off this daycare at, at Bellmede at Loop 340 out there, okay? So it's like a ten to eight to 10 mile round trip, and when you're used to driving nowhere, all of a sudden just one trip out to school and back is, is 20 miles. So uh, back to my day from hell. On this particular day, I leave my house at 8.30 a.m. I have a meeting by the gr grease pit by Baylor at, at 10 o'clock, right? Uh, first, I get to Wago Drive, and I hit a red light 
for every star there is in the sky, okay? That's cool, whatever. I get to loop 340, straight shot up 84, almost killed by a semi who cut me off, and then I have to slam on my brakes. And now I kid you not, I'm like 500 yards from the daycare. I can see it, but traffic is at a standstill, and it takes me 10 minutes to get that distance because I'm going, turning left across traffic, and that's not moving either, okay? That's fine. Get the kids in, start going into town, get to the 8435 bridge there, which on my way through was open, but on my way back has then since been closed. And now I am rerouted to go north uh, to the, the Bellmead intersection by Walmart, and there's one lane for 200,000 cars. So I decide I'm going to take a shortcut, and I cut under Wheeler Street to come up by the Delta Inn, right? If you know what you're tracking with me, I'm going to go over, sneak over to uh, Highway 77, the old Dallas Highway, which turns out to be a detour because of construction. So now I'm waiting even longer. Finally, I get to 77. After like a half hour, I zip back across to get to 84. Finally getting some momentum, hitting something crazy like 25 miles an hour in my car. Uh, because of the backlog of traffic, 84 now is a zoo. And I'm cool, at least I'm going the right direction. I cross the bridge on the Brazos, get ready to turn now left onto 5th to go towards the grease bit. And I can't because road construction, no. There has been a bad motorcycle accident, which I checked the news, by the way. Fellow's okay, so I can use it in the sermon. But now I am furious because I've been rerouted to the right, and I have to do some gymnastics through Dewey Park to get back to 84 to cut across to get back to 5th. So I go down 5th, and I am stopped because now 5th has been blown up, and I can't get there. And in this moment, I start saying every cuss word that I know, and then I start inventing some more, and I directed all of them at Dylan Meek. Uh, I'm not proud of it, but Rene Girard was right about scapegoats. We got to have someone to blame. I know Dylan doesn't make any of those decisions, but I don't care. I screamed, and I screamed in my car. I had absolutely lost it. I left my house at 8.30 in the morning. I was late to my meeting by a half hour. I got there at 10.30. It took me two hours in Waco to drive 20 miles. Um, when all was said and done, my route looked like this. Um, you remember that Atari game, Pong? It's like a dot moving back and forth across the street. I guess this is loosely based on tennis. That makes sense. So it's these paddles. It felt like that day when I was driving in my car, I was in a bad game of Pong. And this, of course, is Paul's experience in Acts 16. Uh, one more map. I'm sorry about all the maps. This is a biblical one, at least. Um, I'm sure uh, the one thing you're really going to miss about me is my artwork. Uh, hoping there's a, a creative outlet for that expression in my next job, you know? Hey, Drayton McLean, I created a thermometer chart and crayons for us for the fundraising effort, you know? Um, Anyways, this is, um, this is Macedonia. It's modern-day Turkey. Let me again read, now that you have a map, Acts 16, 6 through 8. Uh, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia uh, and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. They went and came to the border of Musia, where they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them, so they passed by Musia, went to Traos. Traos, Traos. Um, this text is, is very geographical. Um, and like me on that that fateful morning, Paul too seems to be in a bad game of Pong, being bounced around the region of Asia, but his journey has this maddening difference. He isn't getting rerouted because of construction problems and traffic accidents, he's getting rerouted by the will of God. Uh, many years ago, my friend Danielle Schroyer came here and preached at UBC, and she preached out of Jeremiah 29, um, just before God's favorite graduation verse, verse 11, um, God gives instruction to Israel 
to set up shop in Babylon. It's an exile text. And um, they're in enemy territory. And, and God doesn't just say, like, change your license plates and, and re-register your, your address and whatnot. God tells Israel to, like, plant gardens, to, to build homes, to marry foreign spouses, to intermingle, to, to shed the instinct of purism and create some mudbloods and whatnot. Uh, and Danielle offered this word to describe Israel's existence, the reception of this hard word from the Lord. And... Um, it's a word you likely know, but, but before um, I, I give you this word, I want to remind you of the power of a well-placed word. Um, sometimes you have borborgamas in your stomach, and you're like, oh, I don't feel good. What is this? And then you're like, it's the borborgamas. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I said it. The word that Daniel offered us that day in the sermon was the word liminal. I went back and looked because this is the often is the case for me. I I hear a word and I begin using it prolifically and then I don't actually know the definition. So here's what my friend Webster told me. Liminal means relating to a transitional or initial stage of a process or occupying a position at honorable sides of a boundary or a threshold. Um, now, if, if you're a thinking person, my interest in both this part of Paul's story and this word probably presents itself as obvious. I, of course, have been in liminality. It's where I have taken up residency within myself these last few months. Um, and it is a tough place to be. If you've ever been in a liminal space, it can be really hard. Um, and if I have been right in my insistence on the four stages of faith development that I've preached probably too much these last 15 years, then I think the liminal places become harder the older you get, a more difficult place to abide. Uh, I think the wise among us become less self-assured the older we get, and it's, it's not entirely unproductive. The, the interesting question about Paul's story is not just uh, what was he supposed to do, but how did he get there? And the answer to that is that he kept moving. Uh, Let us say a word about Christian discernment for a second. Because we think dualistically in terms of right and wrong, uh, we are often tempted to tell ourselves that uh, God must lead us to the right answer. And maybe that's what happened in this story with Paul. Uh, But I like to think of God as infinitely resourceful, that the percentages change as we change, that telos is a moving target in this dance that we do called discipleship. Um, But I should tell you uh, that the older I get, the more the answer becomes the journey, not the destination. And now I should probably stop because I'm sounding dangerously uh, like a motivational cat poster. But um, I bring up the story of Paul not because I'm in the midst of liminality, but because I think that we are about to be. Um, You are the ones who will be proverbially driving around town and find that your destination has been blocked and it requires you to travel down roads that you didn't intend. And when that happens, it can get hard and it can be frustrating and you can be tempted to blame one another and you'll be tempted to leave and find a church that has it all together. Those, by the way, are a myth. Liminality makes space for creative and exciting things to happen, but it also makes space for division to happen. And now, to rescue Paul from all the embarrassment, I want to transition to the Old Testament text. Paul Karen, that is. Um, This is a story that in 15 years of preaching, I have never preached. Um, And there's a very specific reason for that. 
Um, it's because I use it at, at weddings, and, and it may have used it at some of your weddings, in fact. Um, Genesis 29 comes up in ordinary time in year A, so that'd be like at the end of, of the summer, usually late August, early September. And every time it has, I have passed it on by uh, with enthusiasm. Um, so I'm using one of my last four Sundays here to finally preach it to you, and um, I think it has hidden within it a word that could be very helpful for this liminal space we're about to find ourselves in. Um, and I should give credit where it's due. I, I heard Craig Barnes preach a version of the sermon 2014 at the Festival of Homiletics, and then our own Craig Nash do something very creative with it at a wedding in um, 2015. Um, so here, here's the story. Genesis 29 is a story about our, our favorite trickster, a bit of a scoundrel, a guy named Jacob. Um, our Bible reading began in verse 14, but let me just provide some of the narratival details that exist in front of this story. Um, in the chapter before this, in a story filled with what I call yet another uh, story of good biblical family values, Jacob steals his brother's birthright for a bowl of soup. Um, now, I will tell you, I've been very hungry at times, almost even ravenous, uh, but it really takes a special kind of dumb to trade away your birthright for a bowl of soup. As the kids say, Esau may struggle with being a little bit basic. Uh, Esau is exuding some really Joey Tribbiani, Tribbiani energy in this story. Um, as such... Jacob has taken from him, and he is on the run. And Genesis 29, Jacob arrives in Padan Aram, a, uh, a minister, uh, ancient Near Eastern city that I think is located on the planet Naboo. Um, Jacob gets there. He begins this conversation with the locals. He inquires about Laban, who is his uncle. And as he's inquiring, Rachel comes in the distance, sheep in tow behind her. Uh, she is Laban's daughter, Jacob's cousin. And um, then Jacob does three things. He, he waters her sheep. Um, he kisses her, and then he discloses to her that they are cousins. Uh, now, if you're like me, you've always been a little bit troubled by the biblical character's willingness to play fast and loose with the genetics, right? Um, but but they, they did not know what they know, say now. And I will say, I'm late to the game with Downton Abbey, uh, and so recently have been stunned to discover that even our British counterparts, as recently as the 20th century, were exercising the cousin option. So, and they turned out pretty good, right? You got what? The Beatles, Harry Potter, Kieran? So I digress. Um, <laughs> then our reading picks up. And what did you hear in our story today? Uh, Jacob would like to marry Rachel. And um, it's texts like these that just feminists love. Jacob can marry Rachel in exchange for seven years of labor. Uh, then the night for the wedding rolls around. And then uh, another strange detail. It is time for Jacob and his bride to take matters into the honeymoon suite. And uh, the Bible, the book that brought you the sacred covenant that is marriage, reports that Laban brought Jacob Leah and that Rachel was brought a servant Zilpah to be her attendant. Um, I don't intend to make this any more uncomfortable than it already has been, but let me reread verses 23 through 25. When the evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her, and Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. Um, now, I've never been able to figure out. Uh, either Jacob was, was legally blind, or he is so hammered drunk that he could make Chevy Chase look sober in Caddyshack, because how does that happen? Um, well, this is how this works out. A week later, Jacob marries Rachel in exchange for another seven years of work. Um, now, I'll tell you, when I would preach this in weddings, there was always, by this point, very much some nervous energy in the room. 
And I would stop and ask the bride and groom, I suppose you're wondering why I have picked a text about uh, backstabbing deceit and polygamy as your wedding text. And people would nod their heads in, in fury, including the, the bride's parents. And um, what I would then say to them is that someday, maybe in a year, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, uh, you will wake up and you will look over and what you'll expect to find is that you have been married to Rachel, but what you discover is that you have been living with Leah. And then you'll ask yourself this question, what happened to this person that I married? Um, and then in the wedding, I will give a series of rhetorical remarks about what happened. Uh, stress happened. Um, not having enough money happened. Cancer happened. Kids happened. Dreams going unfulfilled happened. Not being able to go to the bathroom without at least two toddlers in there with you happened. And the punchline then, the question then is not, are you saying yes to your partner today? Because that's easy. Are you saying yes to every version that your partner is going to become in the future? Uh, but as my friend Billy Mays says, wait, there's more. There is an interpretive key in the middle of this text that you'll miss if you don't know the Hebrew, which who of us does. Uh, so let me dig it out for us. Uh, Leah really is the most interesting person in this story. I'm going to reread one of the verses from the story that we all probably ignored. It's in verse 17. First, I'll read it from the NIV. It says this. When the author was giving biographical information, it says Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. It's an odd detail to include, isn't it, that Leah had weak eyes? But what's puzzling is that this mysterious word changes in other translations. For example, if, if you read the NRSV, um, it says that Leah had lovely eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Uh, both readings can function and make sense. The Hebrew word is rakuth, and if you ask scholars what the right interpretation is on this, they're split. Nobody can say with certainty what the original author intended to say. Um, I like to think that the ambiguity is there on purpose because I think the choice is yours. When you wake up one day and you find that you have been living with a person that you didn't marry, a partner, and they become a different person, you can choose either to see something weak or something lovely. There is an analog for all of, the, all of us in this. The most descriptive metaphor for the church in scripture is that of a bride. UBC is about to enter into one of these seasons that will change her the kind of season that will make her look different than she is today. Liminality will do that to a community. Wandering and getting redirected can do that. And what's coming is gonna be hard and there's gonna be frustration and, and hurt feelings and you'll be tempted to quit. And my word to you today is that when that moment comes, you have a choice. You can choose to see something weak or something beautiful in each other's eyes. And for 15 years, I have had that choice. And I have decided to see something beautiful, and that decision is what kept me here. And you guys, it has been so worth it. It's not magic, it's not fantasy, it's hard work, but it's worth it. So in closing, I want to say this to you, UBC, may we learn to keep moving through the liminal spaces. May we trust that our movement, despite our not knowing, is holy work. May we count the prohibitive responses of God as blessing and may we learn to see something beautiful instead of something weak in each other's eyes. Instead of offering my extemporaneous prayer at the conclusion here, I want to read this Merton prayer which I've used a few times over these years that has meant a great deal to me. I think this is appropriately a prayer for liminality. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. 
I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so, but I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death. I will fear not, for you are ever with me, and you never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of worship, I'd like to take time and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit together in silence. Perhaps the Holy Spirit will correct something I've said incorrectly, or perhaps the Spirit will minister something new.